Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I am Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week, we're exploring a fascinating topic, truth and lies, or for those of you in the investment industry, fraud and deception. My guest has spent many years thinking about and researching how financial analysts can improve their ability to tell truth from lies. In fact, he even wrote a lie detection guide for investment professionals that was published by CFA Institute. Jason Voss is a CFA charter holder and CEO of Active Investment Management Consulting. He's written lots of popular posts over the years, including a perennial favorite, advice on how to become a research analyst. Now, how many times have you heard that one way to tell if someone is lying is to watch their facial expressions and body language? I feel like I hear that all the time. In today's episode, you'll hear why body language is not the key to lie detection. And you'll hear why Jason believes computers can give investment professionals a huge advantage in evaluating the truthfulness of company communications. We talk about the process for developing data and some of the real-world applications for investment professionals. Now, before we start, a quick reminder that the Take 15 podcast now has its own YouTube channel, so be sure to check it out and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our latest interviews. We've also added show notes to the episode so you'll find links to the articles, books, and song that Jason mentions. And now on with the show. Please enjoy today's conversation with Jason Voss. Jason Voss, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you back again. And I thought I'd start somewhere kind of fun in pop culture and the world of spy thrillers. Um, and the reason is that I just finished watching The Bureau and it's a French, uh, they call it a cerebral spy thriller. And of course, deception is the currency of agents and you know, polygraph tests loom large. So I'm so curious to know, do polygraphs work? They can, is the answer. They're not reliable enough uh, across interview subjects, and they're easy to spoof if you know a little bit about them. So they do work. They're not super accurate, though. So I guess I just jumped right in. So let's give the, the audience a little bit of context here. Sure. You've been interested in the sort of field of deception since you were a fund manager. And uh, I think listeners may be surprised to hear that you did some pretty ground, sort of groundbreaking work at your time at CFA Institute. So dial back a little bit for us and tell us how you became interested in this field. Yeah, sure. So it began, as you said, Lauren, when I was a fund manager, and I recognized pretty early on that I was super reliant on the statements that came from management about the future of the business and all the things that, as an investor, make you money, which is understanding how the business is going to perform in the future. The best source of that information is from the companies themselves. And you recognize fairly early on, oh, my God, I have to be able to trust these folks. So I began then... Uh, God, this is you know a quarter of a century ago. I'm dating myself massively, but um, I read a book called Never Be Lied to Again, which teaches uh, how to read body language, which I later learned uh, does not work. Um, and from that moment forward, I've been super interested in, in that as a pursuit. And as you know, Lauren, uh, when I first started at CFA Institute, within weeks of me starting and of you starting there, 
um, that was one of the first things I pursued because I, I still understood all those years later just how important it was to investment managers to be able to discern truth from lie. It's super important in our business. So you just mentioned that body language doesn't work. And that's, I think people will be surprised to hear that. Why doesn't it work? What are the data that support that? Yeah, sure. So there, let me take first that it's been examined since 1958 in the scientific literature. It's actually one of the most researched uh, beliefs in all of social psychology. There have been hundreds of studies that have been done. There was a meta-analysis done several years back. There's been another meta-analysis done subsequently. For those in the audience who don't know what a meta-analysis is, it's a study of studies. So it's basically looking at all the work that's been done on a subject and trying to glean signal from amongst all the noise. And those meta-analyses, both of them, have found that about 54% is the accuracy of people using body language to be able to discern between truth and lies. So just barely better than chance. Um, there are theories as to why it doesn't work. One of them is that those who believe that body language is indicative of lies tend to think it's because liars are more anxious when they're lying. And what has been discovered by science is that both liars and truth tellers can be anxious, for example, in an interview situation like we're in right now. And so, yes, you can tell anxiety from body language. It's hard, but that isn't necessarily directly implicated in uh, deception. And there are no, there's no Pinocchio's nose, in other words, as to what constitutes deception. So if body language doesn't work, it begs the question, what does work? Yeah, sure. Uh, there are a number of things that do work, and many of them are sort of emerging because the body language thing was kind of a head fake and led to a foggy sort of understanding of the subject for decades with lots of people trying to replicate preliminary results done uh, in the 70s on this work. They couldn't replicate it. And then people started saying, well, there, there have to be things that we can do. I'll mention one because it's highly potent. It's called strategic use of evidence. It's something that I discuss in a CFA Institute product uh, that I authored when I was there, along with criminal justice professionals. And it is a way of conducting a conversation like we're having right now in such a way where lies and truth are more likely to be discerned by the, the practitioner. And the success rate there has been measured as high as 88%. When you compare that to that 54%, it's a quite remarkable difference. Um, and then there are other techniques. One is called cognitive load technique. Uh, you might have noticed if I mean, it's COVID as we're recording this in the midst of COVID. But prior to COVID, you might have noticed going through the airport, uh, especially customs, the nature of the questions that they ask you has changed. And that is because uh, research has shown that liars have a higher cognitive load. That is, they're manufacturing reality in real time often, and that's hard to do. So by increasing the cognitive load of the questioner, or the, I'm sorry, the questionee, the interviewee, uh, it's been shown to be uh, more revealing of deception. And then, of course, there's text-based deception analysis, which is uh, a particular area of focus for me for the last couple of years. So I should just tell listeners that you have, there are two acronyms. So the first one is the SUE, the Strategic Use of Evidence, and this text-based is another kind of clever um, acronym, data or data, depending where you're sitting. Uh, and that's the acronym for deception and truth analysis. And so if I understand correctly, this is based on language signals. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. And this is work that, as I alluded to, I've spent a couple of years developing. And it's based on scientific research that was initially done 
by psychologists in a quite interesting application. And that application was people who were helping their patients as psychologists cope with PTSD. And one of the therapies that was first advised was journal keeping. And sadly, some of the psychotherapists who believed in the journaling noticed that there was a high proportion of suicides and that in other words, there were lies in the journal, that the journals gave no indication as to whether or not people were suicidal. And so they became very interested in researching, hey, can we glean deception within text based on our understanding of social uh, sociolinguistics? And the answer was yes. And so they began testing for that. They began publishing preliminary research on that. Uh, if the audience is interested, go look at James Pennebaker's work. He was sort of the pioneer. He also has a book called The Secret Life of Pronouns, which maybe only Lauren and I would appreciate. Uh, <laughs> but it's about the sorts of signals about a person's underlying psychology that are leaked out, if you will, in their communications. And so data, which you mentioned, is a more sophisticated way of trying to glean deception or truth from text-based communications. Actually, before we go a little bit further, uh, let's spend just a quick moment on the, sort of the semantics of uh, fraud versus deception. Sure. Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Uh, it's possible to deceive without being fraudulent. And this is something that the folks that research lie detection spend a fair amount of time on. And the, dis the easiest distinction related to investing is, is it possible for a high growth company that's performing ex exceptionally well to want to guide the analysts down in terms of its performance. Yes, and that's a frequent occurrence, in fact. That is deceptive behavior, but not necessarily fraudulent behavior. Fraudulent behavior is literally manufacturing something that does not exist. It, it's creating an alternate reality as opposed to skewing reality. And so uh, it's an important distinction to make uh, when considering this kind of work. So you spent the last couple of years working on this data slash data uh, project. And I know you've also written a blog post for Enterprising Investor quite recently. And just so listeners know, uh, in our show notes, we'll make sure to link to that blog post as well as the, as the books that Jason just mentioned. So tell us a bit more about how this data process or data process actually works. Sure. Great question, Lauren. Uh, the mechanics of it are less sophisticated than most people think. Most people, when they hear this, because AI and natural language processing are sort of de rigueur at circa 2021, people tend to think that this is some form of artificial intelligence, and it's not. It's dumber than that. So the way it works is it takes a given communication, and it looks at each word in that communication individually, and it asks a very simple question. What part of speech is this word? If it's a verb, is it a verb that relates to some sort of uh, motion? For example, walking, talking, running, something like that. Or is it a different type of a verb? If it's a noun, is it a personal pronoun? Is it a noun that relates to an object? What, what are the use of prepositions, quantifiers? There's a category called differences, which if we're making this conversation, you asked me a difference question before. What's the difference between fraud and deception? So the word but, the word however, are difference type words. So on the front end, it looks at each word and it sort of categorizes them. And then what researchers have found and what I have found in my own research is that the way liars and uh, truth tellers communicate and how they use these different parts of speech is quite different. And so we look at in data, uh, over 30 language fingerprints, I'll call them, um, to be able to render uh, an assessment about the level of deception or truthfulness um, that a given communication has. 
So there was something that you had mentioned in your uh, Enterprising Investor blog, and that was kind of a, a fairly mind-boggling statistic. And I know that the, this audience likes sort of data and, and numbers. And I think if I've got this correctly, you had written that you were looking at hundreds of documents and that numbers only constituted about 13.5% um, of annual reports or quarterly reports. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so one of the ways that data works is it takes a given document of a kind and then relates it to many other documents, uh, alias normative data. Um, that said, and I'm going to take half a step back, data was developed or the algorithms were developed out of sample, meaning it's based on how human beings in general lie, not how human beings in finance lie. And so we've developed these lie detection algorithms, if you will, but then applied them to a finance setting. Why is that interesting? Um, it's interesting because that information comes from a huge cache of normative data that we collected to refine the results for finance specifically. And that's where that 13.5% comes from. What we were shocked to find is that numbers are only 13.5% of an annual report on average. The other 86.5% is all text-based. One more fascinating thing. What we are finding is that we are able to detect fraud well in advance of regulators or the market. And our working hypothesis for why that's the case is because words that people are using are indicative of underlying behavior. In fact, that's the theory of how data works. But the numbers themselves are outcomes based on the initial behaviors. So people are talking about their behaviors, say, in 2009, it may be 2014 until a scandal breaks and is visible in the numbers. Said another way, liars can only lie with words for so long before it shows up in the numbers. But if you're not looking at the words, you would never know that. Actually, speaking of uh, things turning up in the numbers, when we were chatting offline, you had mentioned something about the war card database. But is that related more to Sue or to data or data? It could, it could be related to both, but more to uh, data, deception and truth analysis. It is among a handful of databases considered a gold standard for doing double-blind testing of this kind of a technology. Um, and the reason it's considered gold standard is a reporter, actually a group of reporters, your, your profession uh, by, by root nature, um, did a quite wonderful public service back in uh, the early 2000s. And that was they logged and recorded the statements from politicians that were taking place and they verified and fact checked that. And they created a database of 935 proven lies, but then miraculously they have 935 proven truths from those same communicators. And so what that allows you to do is double blind testing. So you can run these statements from these politicians through your algorithms and it gives you a really good rendering of how effective is it at surfacing deception? How effective is it at dis uh, discerning truth? And what's the overall uh, uh, success rate? Which then allows you also to report cool stuff like how many false positives or false negatives does your algorithm render? There are a couple of other databases, but the Warcard database is the name of the original article um, that that data was originally gathered for. Okay. So we are going to spend some time talking about you know, why investment professionals should be caring about this. Uh, before we go down that sort of uh, rabbit hole, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, some earlier work you had done that exposed, I think what you call the strong truth bias in the investment profession. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, sure. So research I did with uh, Dr. Maria Hartwig, uh, Laura Brimball, and D. Brian Wallace all of various universities, but all criminal justice uh, professors who reached, researched this stuff formally and done on behalf of CFA Institute, 
And by the way, it resulted in a journal of behavioral finance article too. If, if people in the audience are interested, they can go find it. But we were looking at the success rate of lie detection on the part of financial professionals. We think still that that was the first time in human history that had been done. And the success rate was below uh, people. Uh, so I said earlier, 54% is the global average. Finance pros, just 51.8% in finance. So we're slightly better, though, than we are in our normal lives, which is just 49.4. So we're basically flipping chance. And what we've discovered in that same research was a very pronounced truth bias on the part of financial professionals uh, in their own domain, meaning working within finance, that was over 60%. So said another way, when we encounter information in finance, our, our bias, strong bias, is to think that that's uh, a truthful statement that's being reported to us. So the actual lie detection ability of finance pros is only around 39% because it's one minus that 61%. In other words, we're more frequently than not guessing as to the truth of something. And when you mix that result plus the lie result, you get that 50, whatever it was I said, 51.8% success rate. So when you do the mixture of the truths and the lies, you get that 51.8. But it's skewed strongly towards truth. Okay. So if you think of like the strong truth bias uh, and you combine that with uh, an overconfidence bias, which is pretty prevalent in the industry, that seems like a pretty diabolical combination. Yeah, you're, you're right. And that's something else in another piece of research that uh, we did, uh, same research group, Sands, Lore, Brimball. That was actually the first research we did. So we looked at the belief about lie detection on the part of finance pros. And so we asked them, what level of success do you believe that you have? And that was approximately 20% better than they actually logged and recorded. So they, lot, finance pros think they're about 75% able to tell the truth. In fact, uh, it's about 50-50. So there's an extreme overconfidence there. So at your core, I mean, you really are rooted in fundamental investing. What are some of the real-world applications for data slash data for analysts and investors? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think the primary one is to narrow the focus of fundamental research. So right now, as we're talking about this, active investment managers in particular are under duress. Expense ratios are falling because they're trying to compete with passive products. Because expense ratios are falling, analyst headcount is falling as well. And what that means is people are covering the same size universe, but with fewer people with fewer resources. So the obvious application is, run uh, given text documents, say quarterly reports or annual reports or earnings call transcripts through deception and truth analysis. Takes about a second to assess 70,400 words, uh, which is extremely fast. It's about 99.997% faster than people can assess uh, a similar document. And that would immediately identify, say, in a fishing pond or an investment universe of 100 names, these are the three that you need to focus on. So that's one application. Another application would be take your portfolio or your fishing pond, that is your investment universe, investable universe, run it through data, see if there are any black sheep that are hiding out there. It could be that you have uh, already invested in a name or considering investing in a name where that's the case. Or as one-off analysis would be another way to do it. Like you have a suspicion that this company may be deceptive, so you do one-off. Next application would be time series. So how does it change over time, right? And maybe the deception score dips over the course of a couple of quarters and it alarms you because you're not seeing anything in the numbers that would alarm you. And then the last application I can think of is screens. So right now, many uh, investors establish their investable universe with screens. And so that might be something like uh, earnings per share growth, 
each quarter needs to grow greater than 10%. So why not make this a part of the stock screen and the part that actually looks at that 86.5% of text that you're not looking at right now? So GameStop has been very much in the news lately and short sellers uh, in the news. So is this one of the applications that it'll help companies identify companies, or I guess analysts identify companies to short? Yeah, boy, I hesitate to, yes, you could, quite obviously. The, the question is, what's the lag? And I think if I were a researcher in that space, I would want to understand and do back testing on how long before the deception scores are negative until the market seems to recognize that. That's the trickery or the difficult thing of short selling is you have to get the direction right and the timing right, and the timing is the tricky part. But yes, you so could when when we were chatting off mic, you'd also mentioned that, that the lag time between when there is, I guess, in this case, fraudulent behavior and when it turns up in the numbers. And was it something like six years? 6.6 .6 years is what we found. So one of the initial tests that we did of data to test to see if it was accurate was, well, actually, let me take half a step back. The first thing that we did is we tested the Dow Jones, and we, we had a very simple decision rule. It wasn't even back testing, plural. It was a back test. We said, well, if there's, in fact, signal here in these algorithms, then presumably we should be able to make money based on this. And so our decision rule was assess all the annual reports of the Dow Jones components at the beginning of a year, wait until the end of the year, in fact, January 2nd of the following year, first trading day of the year, and then invest in the 25 companies that aren't the most deceptive. So the 30 components in the Dow, don't buy the five most deceptive, buy the other 25. And that resulted in an average of 104 basis point advantage over uh, just buying the Dow directly. And so we thought, well, so it's working. What's another test potentially of these algorithms? And so we decided to look at the scandal companies, specifically the top 10, worst scandals of all time, and data was able to identify them with an average lead time of 6.6 .6 years. Wow, it's a fascinating topic uh, and so much interesting work that you've been doing on it, Jason. Uh, so in our last few minutes, we, we're going to go to our, our closing questions. And um, it won't be truth or dare, so don't worry about that. So <laughs> the first question is what I call the, sort of the ray of sunshine question. And so listeners know that this came from Trevor Noah, about a year ago, just as the pandemic was starting, he had this little closing segment on his show that always had some sort of, you know, ray of sunshine. So I like to ask guests for what their ray of sunshine is uh, from the pandemic. So one sort of long lasting positive impact that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic. Uh, well, ironically, I think a greater appreciation that you can accomplish a lot working from home. I know that's not a universal experience, but globally now, I think there's an appreciation for just how much we can do. Me personally, because I'm concerned about environmental impacts on uh, uh, the world, office space, for the most part, sits unoccupied most parts of the day. It's only occupied for about 60 hours of the week. Homes sit occupied for a far longer period of time, typically. And so I, less real estate equals less footprint, equals less energy and all the things that come with office buildings. And so I'm hopeful that that has an environmental impact. Um, that, and I'll, I'll, selfishly, I've gotten to spend way more time with my wife uh, over the last year, and that's been quite lovely. 
That is great. It's funny, I, you know, I was just thinking the other day when I ask people this question, many say, oh, you know, I've gotten to spend lots of time with my children and hardly anyone says more time with my spouse. <laughs> that is, <laughs> it's refreshing to hear that. So thank you. So the second question is what I call the NASA question and that you're about to hop on a, a long duration space flight. You can only take one object with you. What do you take? Oh, that would be, I was about to say an iPod, but that would date me, but it would be music. Um, music is probably the most important sort of objectifiable thing that I could take with me. And I would, my iPod, uh, I'm a big collector of music. I think it has 43,000 songs on it or something crazy. So I would take that because that's like taking a whole room full of CDs with me. Wow. So I, it begs the question, I have to sort of ask, like, what, what's in your sort of all-time top five favorite songs? Oh, God. Well, Lauren Foster, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, I would have to think long and hard about that. Uh, I th the most played song on my iPod, that may be the easiest way to answer it because yeah. I, I sort of check out and do work to it, is a song by a reggae artist named Johnny Osborne, and it's called Murderer. And it is super catchy and it has a very solid rhythm. And so there are times when I've listened to it for 12 hours on end, just on repeat. So I'm not wow. sure that's my favorite song, but that is the, I think it's been played like a thousand times or something on my, uh, my iTunes. That's amazing. So the final question, we're going to talk about superpowers and you can choose one of two superpowers, either flight or invisibility, whichever you choose. You're the only person in the world that has that particular superpower. Which one do you choose and what do you do with it? Flight. Have fun. <laughs> easy. Yeah, that, that's an easy one. I, it's funny. My, my mom asked me that same question. It must be making the rounds. And she chose invisibility. That, a debate ensued as to that sort of thing. But uh, I would choose flight and just to have some fun. Uh, I might think of more productive uses for humanity or something, but I'll, I'll take the fun part first. Well, Jason, it's always fun catching up with you. Um, thank you so much for joining us and telling us more about your work. And like I said, uh, we'll tell listeners where to find some of those uh, references that you made. And um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, CFA Institute. Thank you, Lauren Foster. <laughs> You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way, you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.